our most gracious Heavenly Father, the heavens declare your glory. All of creation declares your glory. And what a great privilege it is, O oh Lord, to be here today together as a family and to lift our praises to an open sky. Lord, we pray that as we come to your word today, that you would feed us with your word, that you would nourish our souls, that you would convict us of our need for Christ, of our need for one another, of our need for grace. Oh, Father, may Christ be glorified in this time. And may your people be strengthened. Oh, Father, we are so weak. We are so weak in so many ways. But your word nourishes us. And you, and you alone, have the words of eternal life. So feed us today, O oh Lord, and strengthen us for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 6. We're going to be concluding our study of John chapter 6 today. We're going to be looking at verses 66 to 71. John chapter 6, verses 66 to 71, if you have your Bibles with you. This will be kind of an abbreviated sermon. I realize that you guys can't go to the bathroom, you guys can't get out of your cars, so we're going to keep this as short as possible today uh, for all of our benefit. <laughs> Friends, people have all kinds of ideas when it comes to what the gospel is and what the gospel is about. And as with anything, there are more wrong answers than there are right answers. Some people will tell you that the gospel is a call to self-realization. And while the gospel certainly does force us to realize some things about ourselves, this is not the gospel. And it's not the primary purpose of the gospel. Self-realization, in fact, has less to do, by definition, with realizing things about yourself than it has to do with unlocking your potential. Now, it's not uncommon to read and to hear prosperity teachers say things that sound like they're straight out of a fortune cookie. Things that relate to self-realization. Things that relate to unlocking your potential. The gospel is not a call to unlock any degree of your potential. Some people will tell you that the gospel is a call to social action. I had an acquaintance who posted a picture on Facebook a few years ago of a Subway restaurant that was offering free sandwiches to the homeless and to people who were hungry. And my friend captioned the picture with, this is the gospel. Is it really? No, that is not the gospel. While the gospel has everything in the world to do with being conformed to the image of Christ and loving our neighbors, absolutely, the gospel is the root, and our actions are the fruit. So the gospel is not a call to social action. The gospel is not a call to improve your self-esteem. Self-esteem is a desire that is rooted in your flesh. 
in the part of our being that rebels against God's will and God's ways. In our day, the self-esteem movement has become the idol of the age and has resulted in there being parts of the world where saying something that might hurt somebody's feelings can get you thrown in jail. The gospel is not a call to improve your self-esteem. The gospel is not a call to become a more moral person. It's not a call to do better. It's not a call to be better. It's entirely possible for an atheist to be the most moral, philanthropic person in the world. That is to say that it's possible to be what Jesus called a whitewashed tomb. Clean, maybe even pristine on the outside, but on the inside filled with death and all forms of uncleanness. No, the gospel is not a call to be more moral or more virtuous. These are all things, friends, that man in his natural, fallen, rebellious condition can get behind. These are all things that people have tried or do try to make the gospel all about. Sinful man is at peace with these false ideas of the gospel. But present a person with the true biblical gospel... And it is deeply, deeply offensive to natural man. The gospel is not a call to self-realization. It is a call to self-denial. In Mark 8.34, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The gospel is not a call to esteem yourself more highly. It is a call to esteem Christ more highly. The gospel is not a call to social action. It's a call to a different kind of action, an inward action, where we turn away from our sin, where we repent, where we change direction, and to turn to Christ in faith. The gospel is not a call to be a moral person. It is a call to acknowledge that you are not a moral person, that you have fallen short of God's holy and righteous standards. And thus you have no hope of standing before him within yourself, in your own deeds, in your own sense of your own righteousness. Because if we measure our righteousness by God's standard, we have none to speak of. The gospel is the good news that you can be reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this is completely offensive to man in his natural condition. And so friends, as we come to our final lesson in John chapter 6 today, we reach the same turning point in Jesus' ministry that we saw when Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. At that point in his ministry, that's the point that we're reaching today, People had been following Jesus. Masses of people had been following Jesus. But upon being confronted with the cost of following Jesus, many, many, most turned away. It's the same point that we reach in our text in John today. 
The passage that we come to today confronts us with the reality of the offense of the gospel. We saw in our previous passage that after Jesus confronted his followers with their need to, to follow him or to believe in him, and with the fact that he would give himself up on the cross for the sins of all who believe, many started to grumble. Many of those who had been following him, if you consider the, the thousands that were following him at the beginning of the chapter, those who were still with him, many of them began to grumble. And Jesus confronted them. He confronted them. They were offended by the gospel. And this results in what we can only say is a very sad conclusion. A dismal conclusion to a chapter that started off with thousands of people following Jesus. Many people will say that they wish they could have heard Jesus preach. If only they could have been there. If only they could have heard him. If only they could have seen him perform miracles that their faith would be deeper. Their faith would be greater. Those would indeed be spectacular privileges. But what this chapter teaches us is that even the most spectacular privileges of seeing and hearing Jesus can be utterly worthless. You might say that Mary, Jesus' mother, had incredible privileges, and even people of her day thought so. And yet, when a woman once said to Jesus, blessed is the womb that bore you, Jesus responded by saying, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. In other words, it is more blessed to obey than to have even the highest privilege of seeing and hearing and knowing Jesus in person. So the point of our passage today is very simple. It's this. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means standing with him and submitting to him even while others are offended by his gospel and turning away from it. Let me say that again. Being a disciple of Jesus means standing with him and submitting to him even while others are offended by his gospel and turning away from it. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what I'm here to urge you to do today. To stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what those around you would do. Our passage today picks up immediately after Jesus confronted and rebuked the grumbling of the masses who were following him, noting of their offense in verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. So we start with John chapter 6, verse 66. John writes this. He says, As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew, and we're not walking with him anymore. We immediately see that there's a certain cause and effect that has taken place here. We read, as a result. As a result of what? It forces us to think back to what happened immediately prior to this. So as a result of what? As a result of the preaching of the gospel. As a result of Jesus' teaching on the sovereignty of God in election, in salvation. The teaching that man, being so corrupted by sin, will not come to Christ in true saving faith unless drawn by the Father. Jesus will turn none away who come to Him. And the Father will deny none 
who desire to be drawn to Christ. And yet, Scripture confronts us with the reality that none seek God, not even one. And thus, what we must understand is that the person who desires to be drawn to Christ, the person who truly does seek God, does so as an initial effect of their being drawn by the Father. But God is under no compulsion or obligation to do this. It is entirely by grace. Grace is our greatest need, friends. And this is what the Scriptures teach throughout. And this offends man in his natural, unregenerate state. This even offends many Christians. And yet, as Richard Phillips notes of this verse, quote, the line between false and true disciples is always drawn by the teaching of biblical truth, end quote. Now, in our day and age, you would have many who would say that if, if people are leaving, maybe we should start sugarcoating the message. Maybe we should turn the tone down on the doctrine a little bit. Perish the thought. Perish the thought. May it never be. Jesus doesn't do this as people start to get offended, and neither must we. Neither must we. Apostasy, walking away from the faith, is an age-old sin, and it was committed even by those who had the great privilege of hearing and seeing Jesus. And we're warned that this would be a reality throughout the millennia that followed Jesus' earthly ministry, that there would be tares among the wheat, that there would be frauds mixed in with followers, that there would be apostates, people who walk away from the faith anywhere the gospel is preached. And this even happened under Jesus' own preaching. And let us be careful to observe that it was not just a few who walked away. It was not some who walked away. It was many. It was many. In fact, the indication from this passage is that it was everybody except the twelve. The twelve disciples. So I ask you today, friends, will you walk away from Christ if you are offended by something that the Bible teaches? Would you prefer to find a place where doctrine is avoided to worship? Is that what you would prefer? I urge you to stay and to resolve the offense by resolving within your heart, within your mind, to joyfully submit to God's Word, no matter what, no matter what it says, no matter how offensive it might seem to you, knowing that being a disciple of Jesus Christ means standing with Him and submitting to Him even while others are offended by His gospel and turning away from it. Let's continue, verses 67 to 69. So Jesus said to the twelve, you, plural, speaking to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Jesus' response. So let's start by noting two things about Jesus' response to the departure of these false followers. First of all, he's not bothered by it. He's not bothered by the fact that these others are walking away. He sees them leaving, and he lets them leave. But he doesn't appear to be bothered by it in the least. He doesn't, secondly, he doesn't change his message as a means of drawing them back. He didn't decide to take a newer, kinder, gentler approach with them. He didn't decide to sugarcoat the, the, the message for them. He didn't decide to tune down the doctrine for them as a means of convincing them to either stay or to come back. The reality of their departure exposes is that they didn't want what Jesus offered. They did not want what Jesus offered, and he would not offer what it was they wanted. As these false followers were walking away, Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them if they planned on following the masses, on doing what the majority of the people there were doing, by far the majority. He's essentially saying to them, Are you following what is popular or what is common? to man? Or are you following me? Are you going to go the way of the world? Or are you going to go my way? And we shouldn't be surprised by who answers him, right? When he asks a question, it's almost always the same person. It's Peter. He's almost always the first of the 12 disciples to speak up. And his reply is amazing. It's beautiful. It's one of deep, deep conviction that's been forged in the depths of his heart. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Peter's not saying that he has found the teachings of Jesus easy. He's not saying that he's found the teachings of Jesus comfortable or that he understands them completely even. What this reveals is Peter's conviction, as he would say later in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That is something that Peter did not figure out for himself. It's something as Jesus notes in the other synoptic Gospels, that the Father revealed to Peter. You have the words of eternal life, Peter says. What a wonderful confession of faith. The fact that he's not doing what the masses are doing tells us that he truly believes what he's saying here. He's chosen the narrow path that leads to life. And he has turned away from the broad road that leads to death and destruction. Notice that Peter starts by addressing Jesus as Lord. Lord. Now, sometimes the Greek word that gets translated Lord can mean basically the same thing that we mean when we call somebody Sir. It can be just a term of respect but it can also be a term that indicates submission, seeing another as their master, as the one who has the authority 
to tell them what is right and what is wrong and what to do and what not to do. And this is certainly the way that Peter meant it. Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 says, Salvation is from the Lord. That is the sense in which Peter meant it. Peter realized that salvation is found in no one else. He realized that eternal life is found no place else. Consider what Peter's also saying about the masses by implication here, who have turned away from the offer of eternal life. Consider what Peter's saying about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, each of whom has rejected the authority of Jesus. Peter is declaring that there is no other source of eternal life apart from Jesus Christ. He was aware of the same thing that John Calvin was aware of in commenting on this passage, that, quote, as soon as they have gone away from Christ, nothing remains for them but death wherever they go, end quote. And friends, the same holds true for you and for me and for everybody else in the world today. If you look for reconciliation with God in the ways of the world, you will only find yourself remaining under God's wrath. If you look for eternal life within yourself or in a historical human figure or in politics or in anyone or anything other than Christ, all you will find is death. Jesus alone is the true source of light and life. Eternal life is found by forsaking, by turning away from every other option and believing entirely in the Lord Jesus. That means, friends, that your relationship with Jesus can't look like having one foot in and one foot out. We are not talking about the hokey pokey here. We're talking about standing entirely by faith on Christ. Believing in Him alone. Believing that He is the one and only way to be reconciled to God. In this great chapter, John chapter 6, Jesus has declared Himself to be the bread of life come down from heaven. Just as the manna from heaven in the Old Testament physically nourished and sustained the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus alone is able to spiritually nourish and sustain Every sinner who comes to him in faith, forsaking every option that the world has to offer or that our minds could possibly imagine. This conviction that Peter has, this, this deep, deeply held belief, is what gave Peter the courage to resist the temptation to do what everybody else was doing. And if you hold that conviction, friends... It will do the same for you. It will give you the courage to stand as a disciple of Christ and submit to Him even when everybody else is walking away because it's too hard. This conviction is what we need, friends. Pray, therefore, that God would work this conviction into the deepest corners of your heart. Only God can 
That's why Jesus responded elsewhere to Peter's confession saying, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter then says, We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is not what those who left believed. Those who walked away could not say what Peter has said. This is not what the world believes. This is actually the opposite of how the world thinks. Do you see the order of the actions here? Which comes first, believing or knowing? Look at the Bible. What does the Bible say? What comes first, believing or knowing? Believing does. Believing does. My friends, if you are putting off believing until you have everything figured out, until you have every question answered, until you understand, you will never believe or understand. Never. That's not how it works. Salvation is received through faith alone, and it will take you the rest of your life to iron out all the details. And even then, there will be so much more for us to learn in glory. And yet, though a person be saved, the individual can never take credit for it. As one commentator notes of verse 69, he says, quote, the word order suggests some boasting in Peter's confession of faith, end quote. Now, does that surprise you about Peter, that he'd be boasting? Absolutely not. In other words, even as a believer, even as a legitimate Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, Peter was taking pride in the fact that he had stood against the world and stood for Christ, that he had done what was good and what was right by believing in Jesus and confessing Christ as Lord and Savior. And Jesus responds by reminding Peter that he had nothing to boast in. Let's look at verses 70 and 71, and we'll end with this. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Peter's faith, friends, did not originate in Peter. Faith is a gift. It's a gift of God. It's a work within an individual done by God. Peter proclaims, we have believed. And Jesus responds, wait a minute. Did I not choose you? This reminder of God's sovereignty and salvation keeps legitimately saved Christians humble. God's sovereignty and salvation doesn't cause an individual to gloat in the fact that God has chosen them. It causes us to be filled with wonder, to be filled with awe that God would love us, that he would send his son to die for us. It should provoke within us a deep sense of gratitude and humility. We have believed. Did I not choose you? If it doesn't cause you to be humble, if it doesn't cause you to be filled with gratitude, if it causes a person to become prideful or arrogant, seeing others as less than themselves, then they clearly either lack 
understanding or maturity on this matter, or both. Finally, what a terrifying reminder we're confronted with in the last verse of this chapter of the power of human depravity as we consider Judas Iscariot. Think of all that Judas Iscariot saw and heard, all the things he witnessed, all the things that sometimes Jesus even empowered him to do. And yet, he never believed. His heart walked along with those who left, even if his feet didn't. God is far, far more willing to show grace than the unregenerate man is to seek grace. If a man doesn't have grace, it's because he hasn't sought it. If he hasn't sought it, it's because he didn't want it. And if he didn't want it, he doesn't have it. And Judas didn't want it, despite all the things that he had witnessed. Let us, friends, let us therefore resolve to never waste the privilege of hearing the gospel by refusing to believe savingly. Let us remember how desperately we need grace. So I ask you today, friends, to whom will you go? Where do you think you're going to find the words of eternal life? You're not going to find them in man's philosophy. You're not going to find them within your own heart. You're not going to be able to even imagine what they would be. You won't be able to find them any place but in Jesus Christ alone. Do you hold the conviction that Jesus alone has the words of eternal life? Do you have the conviction that eternal life is found in no one but Him? If you do, then believe Him savingly. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Him, regardless of what the masses are doing. And pray for grace, friends. Because God has an abundant supply. And we have a great need for it. And you will need it because being a disciple of Jesus means standing with Him, submitting to Him, even while others are offended by His gospel, and walking away from it. Be strengthened today by His grace, which is received through faith alone in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warnings and the promises. Oh Lord, within our own selves, we could never desire rightly. Sin has left our hearts so corrupted by nature that all we can, all we can ask for is grace. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for not seeking your grace more diligently. Forgive us, O oh Lord, for the times when we have not sought your grace, when we have sought other things that we might think we can find eternal life in. We thank you, Lord, that redemption and forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ alone. 
Thank you for sending him to bear our sins, to take our sins upon himself on the cross, and to also take your wrath, the wrath that we deserved in our place as our substitute. Thank you for such amazing love. Thank you for such amazing grace. Remind us regularly, O Lord, that your grace is greater than our sin and that every day your mercies are new. Teach us to walk in your ways in accordance with your will. Teach us to be more like Christ. Hold us firm as faithful disciples, regardless of what popular opinion may be, regardless of what anyone else may say or do. Hold us fast in our faith that we may persevere to the end, not only for our good, but above all, for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Redeemer. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.